welcome to the Little Red podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the world. I'm Louisa Lim, senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. When the film Ten Years came out in 2015, it was described as a dystopian film with its view of Hong Kong in 2025. Well, now we can see just how much everything has changed in the past four years, or even the past four months. At the time of its release, the film was controversial. The Global Times called it absurd and ridiculous, and said its political message was a virus of the mind. Even though the film won the Best Film Award at the 35th Hong Kong Film Awards, the show was not broadcast in the mainland for that reason. So today we're going to be discussing how this film looks now, not 10 years on, but just four years after it was made. Our panel includes、uh, three Hong Kong scholars: Kevin Carrico at Monash University, who studies localist movements. Uh, Victor Yim at the University of Melbourne, who's researching、uh, social movements in Hong Kong, and Eric Lai, who's researching law and politics at SOAS and is the vice convener of the Civil Human Rights Front, which is the organisation which has been in charge of organising the huge marches we've seen over the past six months.、Um, Eric, let's start with you. We were going to each of us maybe talk about one particular segment of the film. And it was just really noticeable to me when we watched the、um, section on self-immolation. How many parts of it prefigured what we are seeing on the streets? You know, big rallies, meetings with candles,、uh, the police brutality. I mean, what are your thoughts on on how it looks today? Thank you, Louisa. I think it's the first time for me to watch this film. And I often told my friends that I hope this film will not be the apocalypse of Hong Kong. It will not be the revelation of the Hong Kong's future. However, it seems it's coming, and、uh, many scenes,、uh, particularly in that segment, also make me moved. I guess one of the key message in the in the segment is、uh, how shall we deal with lots of conspiracies of a movement. How shall we deal with lots of conspiracies, lots of skepticisms over social movements in Hong Kong? But I guess another side or another perspective of this、uh, segment on the emulator, it refers to how genuine the protesters commit to their beliefs and ideals, and it is somehow transcend the real politic. When we look at when we look at、uh, the young people. Who try to fight not only for democracy in Hong Kong, but also according to the film, they try to fight for self-government or self-determinations, and they have to pay the price. And the price was revealed in the previous years when Edward Learned was imprisoned, when Joshua Wong was disqualified from running from elections. So everything comes true, but it doesn't make people feel that they should give up their ideal. In the movement happened happened in Hong Kong in the past six months, there are mirrors of demands, mirrors of、uh, slogans, including one that is "Free Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times," which was also the slogan for Edward Learn's election campaign. China tried to portray this slogan as a sign of Hong Kong independence, but many people in Hong Kong simply chant this slogan because they want to have a Hong Kong. That we had in the previous decades, 
a Hong Kong which upholds the rule of law, a Hong Kong which upholds the uh, civilized self-government, a Hong Kong that upholds for the basic freedoms for everyone to express their political opinions in a free and safe manner. And I guess it's also echo to the first segment when we see political violence, that people suffered if they won for elections, if they want to have political participations. Perhaps we can share more later on for the first segment. Uh, I guess uh, we need to see this theme and the movement nowadays in Hong Kong in a less skeptical way. Try not to put ourselves into the mentality of China to see everything is engineered by the West or everything is engineered by the states. People fight for their freedoms. People generally want to have the autonomy and wants to have a the democratic Hong Kong, whatever it takes, whatever the price that we will pay. So, Kevin, let's talk about the local egg segment, talking about localism, um, which is what you've studied. We have seen this kind of um, censorship uh, appearing more and more uh, in, in recent months and years, haven't we? I mean, is it looking less dystopian and more, uh, more, more like a kind of, you know, a prediction of not 10 years, but three, four, five? The uh, local egg segment, it shows really how quickly things have developed. Um, it uh, predicts arbitrary red lines in freedom of speech that I think it's fair to say we're very much not in place in 2015. Uh, people could talk about localism, people could talk about independence, but there have been real attempts uh, since the airing of this film to really place arbitrary borders around particular types of speech uh, that has no legal basis. So, you know, we've seen controversies on campuses about whether it's okay to put up signs about Hong Kong independence, whether it's okay to discuss this topic. Uh, just last year, we've seen the banning of the Hong Kong National Party. Um, and watching just now, of course, the uh, sort of youth guard struggle sessions, you know, reminded me to a degree of some of the blue ribbon mobilizations, you know, that we've seen. So when you say blue, blue ribbon, you're talking about people who support the police and, oh, and yes, the Hong yes, Kong government. Yes, yes, yes. Um, particularly over the past uh, few months, um, as um, these groups have become, you know, increasingly proactive um, and confrontational. Now, the irony in um, all of these developments is that while trying to sort of suppress discussion of localism, discussion of independence, they're very much uh, ironically, you know, sort of proving the arguments of independent supporters in demonstrating that real freedom of speech and real sort of freedom of political participation is essentially impossible um, under CCP rule. Well, one other point I wanted to make uh, was that the uh, the final scene in the bookstore, right? 
this was filmed uh, before, you know, the Causeway Bay kidnappings and the ripple effects that that then had upon the publishing industry, the um, bookstore when you, industry. When you talk about the Causeway Bay kidnappings, you're talking about the five booksellers mm, who yes. were disappeared from Causeway Bay and turned up in mainland China confessing yeah, to yes. crimes on television. Mm, yes, and they've told various stories about how they ended up in China, um, but I think probably the most convincing version of the story, right, is that they were forcefully uh, taken there. So, in sum, you know, whether we're talking about growing restrictions on freedom of speech, arbitrary red lines, or, you know, the real transformation of the publishing industry where controversial books, you know, now have to be published in Taiwan, and one finds it increasingly difficult, right, to find bookstores, uh, particularly at the airport, right, uh, that carry these uh, publications. Um, I think that, yes, yeah, well, one of the uh, perhaps uh, most um, outrageous aspects of the film is the fact that um, uh, we've really, you know, fast-forwarded 10 years in uh, just four. Uh, Victor, I wanted to ask you about the dialect segment, which is about the use of language. We lay my guide. I mean, the use of Cantonese is something that we have seen a lot in protests uh, in the last six months, and language has always been key to the Cantonese identity. But do you think that the protests uh, that we've seen have um, helped that sense of being under threat? Has that helped strengthen the Cantonese identity? Uh, I think surely the use of language and the use of uh, Cantonese definitely helped to strengthen the identity. So uh, if you refer to some of the, there are actually there are so many uh, movement watchwords appeared uh, appearing in the current movement, like Tai uh, Tai In English, it is like uh, 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 United We Stand, Divided We Fall, or something like that. And then there are so many more similar watchwords appearing in this movement. I think uh, the use of Cantonese and the use of this sort of uh, political language or narratives help bind people together and then make them feel like they are part of the movement, they are part of the uh, society, and then they are fighting for the same cause. And I mean, you've been studying the dynamics of social movements, um, and I'm curious to find out your views on the radicalization of the protests in Hong Kong because. Uh, the scenes that we saw at the Polytechnic University and the Chinese University over the last few weeks are things that I think many Hong Kong people could hardly imagine. No, um, the police brutality, but also protesters throwing back firebombs and Molotov cocktails. Um, is it only a matter of time until we see a self-immolation like the one in the film? How radical do you think the tactics will go? Uh, it is a very interesting question because um, if you if we refer if we, if we, if we uh, talk about this thing uh, in social movement literature, um, actually it's quite usual for we for we to have to see some sort of uh, radicalism in a social movement. 
So, so basically every social movement has different segments. There are people who advocate some sort of uh, radical, using some radical means, uh, advocating for some radical goals, and then there are also people uh, who will only use some moderate means or some conservative means to fight for their cause. And then right now, we, we, what we are seeing in Hong Kong is that um, there are different uh, actors, uh, be it the violent actors, uh, be it uh, the radical actors or the moderate actors. Actually, they are working together right now in the movement. And then they are saying, oh, we, are not, we are not divided ourselves uh, from you because we, we are one, something like that. Actually, uh, this, this kind of thing actually is quite uncommon in Hong Kong. Because if you, if you refer to the social movement development in Hong Kong, uh, people usually shun radicalism. They don't like violence. They don't like radical means. They don't like the use of our language, something like that. But this time, you see people come together. They do not condemn violence. They do not, uh, they do not say, oh, you should not use violence in, 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 in this movement because it will, it will backfire, something like that. No, we do not see uh, this sort of thing in, in the movement. So I think it is a very interesting phenomenon. We have, to, we have to understand why it is happening right now in Hong Kong. So if we refer back to the uh, social movement literature, Actually, uh, basically the radical flanks, which is the uh, radical segments uh, in a social movement, they are, usually be, they are usually be viewed as the conscience of a movement. So which means that uh, people's, the, the, the moderate or the conservative people usually see them as some kind of, uh, some conscience standard. So, uh, and, and, and this mentality would help, uh, will help to help binding the uh, conservative and the moderate people together, and then make them to be more accountable to the overall movement. So actually, what we are seeing right now in Hong Kong, actually the same case. We see that uh, people, the moderate people and even the conservative people, they are more devoted, uh, more involved in this movement compared to what we see in the past. So I can give you one more example to illustrate this point. Maybe we can just uh, refer to the recent election in Hong Kong. We have the highest turnout, turnout rate in our history, the 71%. So in the past, it is, it is unimaginable. It is, we, we, we usually have 40-something or 50-something turnout rate, but this time we have 70-something. So how, how, how do we understand this? So maybe we can, we can understand it in a, in a way that uh, in, in, in a pre-election time, in a short period of time uh, before the election. Actually, there are some, uh, there is some, a, a number of discourse in the society. And then one of them is the, the, the people want to ask, people want to ask the voters to come out to vote because, uh, because they think it is a way to recognize the efforts of the frontline protesters. So, by voting in the uh, coming election, so we are we are we are we are together. We are showing our solidarity with the frontline protesters. So also uh, in the pre-election period, if you refer to some of the media interviews, there were some interviews uh, interviewing some of the frontline protesters, and the frontline protesters actually they 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 ask the people to come out to vote, and then they say, oh, if you come out to vote, it is a much much easier job than being here guest. So please come out to vote. 
So if we if we if we, if we take all these incidents into consideration, we can see, and then and with the high turnover rate, eventually, we can see that actually the radical flanks, the radical segments in the movement, actually they are binding the moderate flanks and the and the conservative flanks in this movement, and then it sort of gives them a, 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 a kind of moral responsibility to support the movement, to go out and to vote. So Eric, the results of that uh, recent district council election have been quite overwhelming. You know, 17 out of 18 district councils have gone to pro-democratic forces, uh, pan-democrats, and now we've seen a kind of lull in the violence on the street, a lull in radical action. What does this mean? What do you see going forward? Do you think there will be fewer mass protests? Or is it just a sort of temporary lull? I think it's just a temporary lull. And indeed, there will be more protests to come. I think uh, people in Hong Kong are evolving in terms of their mentality, and in terms of their engagement in activism. We have seen both, uh, as Victor said, both radical friends and the moderate friends are learning to cooperate with each other in an indirect manner. What made me moved was that even the radical friends who were seen as anti-establishment, they also asked people to vote. They also asked people to cast their vote because they don't want those councils to be dominated by the pro-government parties. And on the day, on the polling day, no one from whatever from the pro-Beijing uh, pro forces or from the protesters, they try to engage or to uh, make contention with the police. I guess this is a reflection that the radical flank also have self-constraint to appeal for the support from the moderate protesters. But does it mean protests would uh, be, a, be an unnecessary way to strike for our demand? Certainly not. First of all, if most of the winners in the district council elections told us, told the people, the victory in the election is just one small point or one small pillar of the whole movement. I remember when my colleague, Jimmy Sham, the convener of Civil Human Rights Front, the first speech he made... Who's after, just, he's just won a seat, hasn't he? He's just won a seat in, uh, in Sha Tin, uh, in, uh, in a constituency in Sha Tin. He told the press immediately after knowing the polling result. He said his first mission is to rescue the protester in Polytechnic University. He is not saying the first mission is to improve the constituency, but to rescue the people, to rescue the protesters. This is the way how the how the newly elected councillors connect with the people. So do you think they're going to change the role of the district councils, having this many pan-democratic and sort of quite radical candidates? Will that, will that change the job that district councils do? Because until now, what they've done has been you know, quite grassroots work. Conventional wisdom in election studies in Hong Kong would say uh, for the local at uh, the district councils, for the district councils, they are more regarded as improving the environment of the uh, of the neighborhood areas to fix uh, to traffic lights or to improve uh, the local welfare. However, on the other side, district council was also a place when the pro-government forces used the sponsorships 
to nurture their supporters and to expand their networks by material goods, by patron client relationship building to consolidate their votes. But now things get changed. Every year in Hong, in Hong Kong, every year the government would distribute uh, 100 million Hong Kong dollars to each council for local development. In the previous years, the pro-Beijing parties would use this sponsorship to nurture their own affiliations and their own networks against the pro-democracy force. And now we can see there's opportunity to support the movement by having such myriads of resources, not only material, but also by network, but also by uh, the, the local base in the district to support. Let me take one example. I guess the, uh, I guess the missions or the goals of the newly elected councillors in Hong Kong would be to track whether there are corruptions in the previous years to improve the governance. Such money laundering, such issues of corruptions, or, or what we call is like a patron client distributions of goods in local levels that shall be, that shall be traced and that shall receive justice. And second, people would think of public hygiene is something non-apolitical. But now, the issue of public hygiene is a top political issues because most of the issues of public hygiene now is caused by the tear gas and caused by the chemicals. And if you want to deal with this issue, you need to fight against the police. You need to call for the police to stop using tear gas, and it would be another battlefield. I guess this is the way how we engage the local governance with the movement in this way. Kevin, I wanted to ask you about the use of this slogan, Reclaim Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times. I mean, the fact that this is now the most popular slogan, what does it tell us about the movement? Is it sort of inexorably moving towards an independence movement, like the one that we've just seen in 10 years? Yeah, and that, that's a, a very good and a very complicated question, right? <laughs> uh, you know, because I... Uh, uh, I do research on, you know, the idea of independence, and then anytime I do a presentation, I feel like I need to do, like, this big disclaimer at the beginning where I say, okay, you know, I'm talking about uh, independence, but the protests that are going on at the moment are not necessarily pro-independence. You know, if you look at the five demands, none of them are, you know, about independence or anything like that. So you need to, like, proactively push back against kind of Beijing's framing of things, right? But at the same time, mm, how shall I say it? Um, I don't necessarily think that there's an easy resolution to any of the problems through the current system, right? Of course, the elections for the district council, that's great. You know, uh, upcoming, you know, legislative council elections. You know, I don't think the probation camp is going to do well in the coming years in elections, to say the least. Um, but I think when we get down to it, you know, the system is very much rigged in Beijing's favor and in the favor of the uh, establishment parties, um, such that even if you have, you know, 99% public opinion, 
in support of the five demands, um, I don't actually see any way in which those could be realized within the current system. So I would say that in that sense, um, I guess there was a, a New York Times uh, op-ed uh, in the last month or two um, that referred to the protest movement as kind of an independence movement that dare not speak its own name, right? Uh, the idea that basically there simply isn't any path forward in the current system, but people still feel the need to say that they only want to work within the system in order to not be, you know, cast out as sort of, um, you know, dangerous elements. Um, so I think, you know, my only word of advice would be that, you know, if there's somebody who, you know, thinks uh, Hong Kong independence is a an okay idea, you know, just be honest about it and, you know, talk about it freely. Um, and then allow it uh, to have its role in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. But, Eric, even though um, Hong Kong's rights and freedoms have supposedly been guaranteed, this is, isn't it part of the problem that discussion of independence is effectively off the books? If you wanted to talk about it and then, you know, run for election, this could hamper your chances of running for election, and even the freedom to hold marches uh, is, is, I think, un under quite dramatic threat, and we've heard police threatening people for saying certain slogans. I mean, how dangerous is the situation now when it comes to Hong Kong's rights and freedoms? I guess uh, this is a very good question to try to, uh, we try, need to be vigilant, and we cannot get used to what is happening in Hong Kong. Before, before the protests, uh, before the protests since this summer, everyone is everyone is easy to get a license from the police commissioner to organize protests, and the license is called a letter of no objection from the police commissioner. So it's simple. If you want to organize a protest, uh, you told you told the police that you want to do that, and then you will receive a letter of no objection. But now, since in mid-August, when, when we, the Civil Human Rights Front, try to organize mass protests and assemblies, quite often we are rejected. The reason is simple saying, they simply say it is because of the social unrest, then this is because of public danger, we have to safeguard public safety, they, we should not hold a protest. But they forgot that it is their responsibility and duty to facilitate us to exercise our rights and it is their responsibility to make sure public safety, not us. And from our observations in the previous months, it is always the police officers, in particular the riot police, who create chaos and create public unsafety. Take some examples. There were some situations when some youngsters who just criticized the police on the street, saying them they are, they are not protecting the people, they lost their conscience, and immediately, he or she was arrested. But there's no, there's, we don't have such a law that people cannot blame or cannot criticize the police. So even now, we are living in China in a very, in, in a quasi situation. You need to bear the cost if you want to exercise your freedom of expressions, in particular against the police. And now, 
when we see Joshua Wong's case, when he was disqualified by the returning officer in Hong Kong, this was just because he made some speeches three years ago. And the returning officer was so diligent. The first returning officer tried to ask him several questions to, to try to test his commitment or his genuine his genuinity whether he will uphold the basic law. And a month and a month after, the returning officer asked for a sick leave because she doesn't want to handle the case. And then Chinese and the Hong Kong government assigned another returning officer to disqualify Joshua. So you see, this practice is not simply self-censorship. It is a political censorship against everyone who hold a dissent will. Three years ago, Edward Lum was disqualified because of his focal uh, focality in Hong Kong independence. Two months ago, Joshua Wall was disqualified because of his advocacy on self-determination. So what will happen next year? Will simply criticizing China, asking for the end of one-party dictatorship, also be disqualified? No one knows, but now we see the threat is expanding. And um, Victor, seeing these dynamics playing out and also the kind of increasing presence of police and riot police on Hong Kong streets. What does your research on social movements tell you will happen next? How will this, how will this play out? I think um, basically the, the strategy of the government to marginalize, actually basically the strategy of the government is to marginalize the radical segment in the movement. But I think it is a misstep. For me, I think it is a misstep. Because if the movement has grown or has developed into such an integrated movement, which means that there are cross-class cross alliance, there are different peoples from different sectors, they are not happy with the status quo, they are not happy with the handling of the government, they are not happy with, 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 the, with the whole administration right now. So you, uh, but you only deal with this issue by trying to marginalize the, uh, the radical protester. I think it doesn't work in a sense that uh, what, you, what the government is doing is only, can only reinforce the grievances and the oppositional uh, identities of all the participants in, 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 in the movement. Just like, just, uh, just like what I have mentioned, the radical flanks or the radical segment right now, they're, they're, they're being seen as the conscience of the movement. So people. People may not like violence, but people think that they need to support the protest. They need to support the protester. People think uh, they, 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 people, may, uh, people in Hong Kong may, uh, may not like uh, the, the scene, the violent scene, the radical scene uh, at, uh, at the movement sites. But they just cannot find themselves an excuse not to support what is going on now in Hong Kong. So if the government just try to deal with the issue right now by marginalize the radical flanks, it doesn't work because what, uh, the, more you mar the more force you use to marginalize them, the more, the more, the, the, the sense of, uh, the, there is a higher sense of urgency for the moderate people or the conservative people to work together uh, to, to, uh, to go on and support the movement or, or, or even some of them will become 
some of the radical protesters uh, for the time uh, for the time for the coming uh, time uh, to come. Yes. Okay, and one final question for all three of you, and then we'll open it up for questions. So the last line of the film, you see already too late written across the screen and this is replaced by the words not too late and I want all three of you to answer really quickly really briefly is it too late for Hong Kong I would say that it's in my opinion not necessarily too late for Hong Kong I think and people won't be surprised that I say this I think at this point it's really too late for the CCP to reassert you know, I mean, to reassert, you know, complete social control, right, over Hong Kong. I mean, uh, if I was a senior leader in Beijing, you know, I would wish that I had like a time machine where I could go back <laughs> to January or February. You know, one thing after another was passing a completely insane national anthem law seemed like it was going to pass. But somehow they came up with this horrible idea for this extradition bill. And, you know, there's no going back from this. Um, the experience of the past five or six months, I think, has completely changed protest culture in Hong Kong, completely changed society, completely changed, you know, the political direction of the entire city. So, yeah, yeah I'd say the too late part is for uh, Beijing. Victor, I see, saw you nodding. It, is it too late? Uh, so, answer is I think yes and no, because uh, yes, because I'm sort of a pessimistic, and I think um, I the, the five demands uh, in uh, so, uh, so, uh, as, as demanded by the protester. I don't think China or Beijing will give up and then will budge in a, in, in in the coming period of time. I think that's why I say yes, it's a really hard battle and then it is not going to fare well, in my opinion. But why I say no is that actually everything is evolving. Just back five or six months ago, who can imagine what's happening? What's happening right now? I mean, if you ask every academics or every so-called elites in Hong Kong, no one can see this coming. What's happening right now in Hong Kong? So you can see that the society, civil society in Hong Kong is evolving. They have a stronger sense that Hong Kong is our home. We need to protect that by all means. And Eric, finally, I mean, the Civil Human Rights Front has been such a big player in organizing these massive marches. I mean, when you're facing a, a military power like China, is it too late for sort of civil liberties and freedoms in Hong Kong now? It is just the beginning. I guess we will not we will not have freedoms, we will not have civil liberties simply by the blessings of the superpowers, whatever from China, whatever from the states. We fight for our own freedoms, we fight for our own civil liberties, and this battle has just begun in another stage when we see there are 389 newly elected district councillors, they will begin their service in the coming four years in the pro-democracy pro movement. You see lots of people in Hong Kong, wherever in the territory or overseas, they continue to be vitalized in supporting Hong Kong's movement, as well as this movement for freedom in the world. And we see even 
so many protests in different places, like in Chile, like in Iraq, they are also learning from us. I was amazed when I saw the video that the Chilean activists tried to learn from the people, activists in Hong Kong, in how to handle tear gas. They used the water bottle, isn't it? You know, to try to cover it and to make it, yeah, and, and, and to deal with it. People, we, we, are, we, are, we have just begun in, fight, in this struggle. And I, see, I still see hope, not in the situations, but also in the people themselves. Thank you so much. So let's take some questions from the audience. Please uh, ask, ask questions. Thank you. So I voted for Edward Learn back in 2016, when he was uh, running for the substitute um, seat for the Legislative Council. At that time, most of my friends told me that, OK, I will vote for Edward next time, when it is the September election. But I still vote for Edward at that time, because I vote on my belief rather than um, what I think whoever will win. And then a few months later, everyone know what happened. He was put in jail. And then no one can vote for him again <laughs> until he's out. Maybe when he's out, then the, like, the law has changed and we can't vote him anyway. Yeah. So um, if you are a Hong Konger, do not leave until it's the very last minutes. Do not come out when you think you can come out next time. Come out when you can. Thank you. Thank you, and, and I think, you know, an important lesson that can be taken away from this film, you know, is that by just kind of going along with things as they develop, you know, just kind of standing on the sidelines and watching, uh, you know, really horrible things can happen, right? Um, so uh, whether we're, you know, looking at this film and its dystopian vision, or seeing, you know, things that have happened over the, you know, past few years. I think that whatever your, uh, you know, political viewpoint is, you know, it's important to go out and, uh, you know, push for what you believe in. Yeah. I wonder if either of you have any lessons from 10 years? I guess it's once... Um Never get used to what is happening. Never get used to what is something abnormal and what you feel is wrong. You need to speak out with all your diligence. You need to tell the people with all your capacity and you need to stand against it. In the previous years, Hong Kong underwent uh, what we call a movement fatigue. After the umbrella movements, uh, people feel pessimistic and people feel frustrated of protests, of activism. And people felt it's meaningless. It, isn't, it doesn't change anything. But what we see now is somehow we can still make a change. Although we cannot foresee the end of this movement, although we cannot foresee how the goals, how the demands be realized in short term, the fruits are there. The younger generation becomes more uh, revitalized, they are more engaged in public affairs. You see lots of even older generation would like to cast their vote. If you listen to the radios in Hong Kong, 
some uh, older generations, they make a phone in and said it's the first time in 60 years that they cast a vote just because they want to support the young protesters at the front line. So you see, not, it is not a movement just for younger generation, I'm sorry. It's a movement for every generation in Hong Kong. And we, can, we, shall not be, we shall not give up, and we can see there are still many hopes among different sectors. Thank you so much. So we're out of time, but I'm sure the panelists will stay around if you have further questions. Do come and ask us. Thank you so much to our guests, Kevin Carrico, Eric Lai, and Victor Yim. And I'd also like to thank uh, Carmen Fong, Kelly Chan, and everybody at Screening Ideas and Golden Scene, including Felix Chang, for organizing uh, this great event. You've been listening to The Little Red Podcast. Our editor today is Michael Green. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. Our artwork is courtesy of Seb Danta. So thank you very much for coming out tonight. Thank you. Bye for now.